what is up guys jason here welcome back to the channel and our series nurses to riches the road to fire if you've been one of our longtime followers you know that i'm always talking about how great it is to be an rn in california it's one of the few states that pay nurses what they're worth we also have nurse to patient ratios and the best employee protection and overtime laws in the entire country but what if you want to go further than just being a registered nurse well, in this video, we're going to be talking with a nurse that has made the transition from RN to CRNA, and we're going to talk with him about his career path, his reasons for choosing to become a CRNA, and we'll ask him about his income as a CRNA. So first of all, let us know what your name is, let us know where you're from, and why you decided to become a nurse in the first place. Hello, nice to uh, see you, Jason, and uh, good to finally put a face to the name that I've chatted with on Instagram before. My name is also Jason, just to make things confusing for everyone. Right. Uh, Jason Holt, I'm a CRNA, uh, originally from Tennessee, and now I live in San Jose in the Bay Area and practice DJ here. So is Bolt really your last name? Yes. Yeah, that's my That name. is pretty cool. <laughs> that's a pretty cool last I, name. I used to hate my name. I, growing up really? as a kid, I would always pick on it because it stood out. I would have people say, oh, nuts and bolts, or they'd say, <laughs> you want to screw, or something odd like that to me as a kid in elementary school. I always hated it, but now people seem to like it, and it seems to stick. So I say, all right, so, <laughs> for me now. Yeah. So why did you decide to become a CRNA in the first place? I actually, so when I first started college, I was pre-med and I was going to be doing med school. I thought I was going to be a neurologist or an endocrinologist. That's what I thought I was focused in on. And I knew I wanted an undergrad degree that taught me something medical and that was useful. That would actually have given me a career in case something ever happened and I didn't get into med school or something happened where I changed my mind. I would have an actual career that I would enjoy. So I didn't want to do biology or chem or anything like that. So I did nursing and focused in on that because I really liked how it would teach you how to work with patients. It would teach you pharmacology. It would kind of give you um, a more holistic approach to your patients. And I thought that would be important to know as a provider one day. And, and it's funny because you get started at nursing and it's almost like a cult. It just seeps in and it just becomes like part of your thought process and the way that you view your patients. And you really get stuck on the nursing method and the way that the nursing field operates. And I realized I really am passionate about this. I still was thinking I was going to do med school after, but then during second semester of my nursing program, we had our surgical rotations. And that's when I met a CRNA for the first time. And I had never even heard of CRNA before that point. I didn't know that was a career in the nursing field at all. It wasn't talked about. I knew about nurse practitioners. I knew about midwives. For some reason in nursing school, they talk about everything but being a CRNA. It's, yeah. it's like this hidden thing they don't want you to know about or talk about, at least in the past, in 2010, when I was in nursing school. So I met the CRNA and I was shocked. I watched them put in a nerve block for someone, which I thought was insane and terrifying uh, to put a nerve block into somebody's neck. Into It's an interscaling block I know now, but they put a block into their neck and was using nerve stim and causing their muscles to twitch and move. And they were locating this nerve pathway that 
brachial plexus that runs down here and then blocked all the pain and, and sensations from the shoulder. So this patient had shoulder surgery. I thought that was like voodoo magic. And I couldn't believe that a nurse just did that, you know, with all these vital vessels and everything in here that I knew from school was like a lot of anatomy that I would be terrified to be injecting drugs and needles through. I thought that's intense that they could learn skill like that. And then I watched them manage a patient throughout a whole surgical procedure. And I watched them connect with their patient. I watched them build a relationship with their patient in pre-op when they were scared and nervous and, and thought that patient doesn't know, are they going to live or not live in the next couple hours? They're going to be asleep. They're not going to have control on if they wake up or not. And this CRNA built up a relationship with them in five minutes. And they had a connection, a deep connection that I had not seen really with many other patient provider relationships that form quickly like that. And then I watched that person uphold that honor in, in that position that that patient gave them and keep them alive and keep them stable and keep them happy and, and healthy and wake them up and let them go to the recovery room and they were pain-free and no nausea. And they were so excited that it was already done. It felt like one second to that patient. And the whole thing just seemed like uh, magic to me. And I thought, if I could do this as a nurse, that is exactly what I would want to be. That my desire to be a provider, the desire that I thought needed to be medicine, I realized there's a whole field in nursing. It also pays you, like part of your podcast uh, is, is, you know, focusing in on the salary portion. So I also understood, like, I even would get paid well to do this. Like, this is something that you're not going to, you know, have to sacrifice any lifestyle wants or stuff in the future. So you'll be paid well. You'll enjoy your career, and it just seemed like the golden ticket. So that's how I went for CRNA. That's a pretty interesting story. So did you, at that point, make the decision that you were definitely going to become a CRNA? I did. I had actually just taken a semester off. I took a summer semester off to do a pre-med internship at UAB for med school. And they pick 20 people every year, UAB does, to do their pre-med internship. I got picked and uh, took the summer off from nursing school. I got a lot of flack from my nursing school professors for doing that. They didn't like it. and They thought I was kind of betraying the field. But it was my last little move for me to make sure. I really wanted to investigate a lot in the med school and in medicine to make sure, do I want this or not? And by spending a lot of time there, we, we spent a lot of time with med students and residents and we rounded with them in the mornings. We took, you know, exams for MCAT, things like that. It was just prepping us for the future. And by doing that, it taught me like, there's a lot of great things about this pathway, but I don't think it's for me. I don't think the residency path, I just saw a lot of flaws. There's just a lot of things, which a lot of med students and residents will tell you openly as well. There's lots of flaws and, and issues along that pathway. Ma the matching system, um, burnout, lots of stuff. I just noticed a lot of burnout. I noticed a lot of things. And they honestly just told me, they said, hey, if you're in nursing school now and you are thinking about being a CRNA or you've known, like you're looking at this pathway, uh, go that pathway. Like, don't, don't go this pathway. And I had physicians, attending physicians tell me that. And I thought, okay, wow. if the GI doctor in the room is telling me <laughs> the smart person in this room is the CRNA and they're the one who chose the right path, I need to really be heavily investigating that path. And the more I investigated, the more I realized they're right. This is the right path for me. So I totally switched. I wonder if that's just like a reflection of where medicine has come to, you know, because how medicine has progressed over the years, it seems like they've become less patient centered and less patient focused and more about documentation and paperwork. Same with nursing. But, you know, nurses have to spend more time with the patients at the bedside than doctors do. Right. So I think if that plays into it a little bit. It does. I mean, there's, it's, it's not all just their own. I mean, 
part of it is external factors, insurance companies, reimbursement yeah. rates, production request, like demands for more production, more, you know, whatever. And, and I won't, it's not like being an anesthesia puts you totally outside of those elements and you don't deal with it at all. But I would say you're a little more sheltered from it. You have a little, it's a little, it's a specialty that gives you a little more leeway and not quite as much uh, toxicity on those levels that you have to deal with. The, the training to get here is very toxic and very difficult and very stressful and very expensive. But once you get here, it's pretty good. All right. So now let's go over the path that you took to become a CRNA. After you graduated nursing school, where did you work? And what was your plan after working to get into the program? How did that come about? Sure. So I was I went to Jacksonville State University's uh, nursing program. And when I graduated, I knew I needed to be in the ICU because um, you have to have it the minimum of one full year of experience as an ICU nurse to even apply to a CRNA program. Uh, and most people who actually get accepted to CRNA school have closer to three years of experience. So you you have to have a little bit of ICU behind you, uh, and it has it really needs to be a high acuity ICU where you're dealing with like intraortic balloon pump, CRT, um, you know, arts patients that you're using paralytics on. You want to be using lots of high end devices and lots of um, you know very sick people, multiple eight drips that you're titrating and things like that. They really want to see a high level of critical thinking in, in a way that you can kind of manage your patients in the ICU in a way that you can't really do in any, any other area of the nursing field. And um, so I knew I wanted to first, uh, my first job to be in the ICU. So I um, kind of tried to network and make connections and precept in the ICU when I was in nursing school. And my fifth semester I precepted there and I got hired. Um, I was able to finally get hired in, which is difficult. That's a whole journey. Yeah getting hired as a new grad into the ICU. It's a lot of networking. It's a lot of, you know, trying to precept there, make connections, impress the manager, buy a cake at the end of your preceptorship and make the whole unit like you, like whatever you need to do, you need to do that to get that new grad job in the unit. Yeah. And so I did that, uh, got hired in, I cross-trained in CV and uh, CV ICU and neuro, or a little bit of neuro, it was a mixed unit. So we did a little bit of neuro, a little bit of medical, a little bit of surgical and CV. And uh, so I got a great experience. I did two years there, um, okay. fulfilling out a commitment uh, to that hospital. And then after my two years, I went travel nursing and I did two years travel nursing where I rotated between lots of different ICUs. I only, I only worked in the ICU uh, during that time period because I wanted to maintain my critical care experience so that I could you know, apply to CRNA school. And, uh, and during those two years traveling, I also, you know, took my GRE, I got my CCR in, I got my letters of recommendation, wow. I did my shadowing experience. Um, what else did I do? There's, there's like a whole list of things that you have to, you know, I did volunteer work. Uh, I did, you know, uh, medical, I volunteered at a medical clinic in a, an impoverished area. Yeah. You know, you just did all these things. You have to do a lot of stuff to build up your application to try and get into the program. So I spent two years doing that. And then I applied to multiple programs, interviewed a couple places, got turned down at, at one school, two schools actually. And uh, even after all of those credentials, oh yeah, <laughs> wow! I had a 4.0 science GPA. I had taken <laughs> curricular sciences and stuff, but that doesn't matter. Like it, a lot of, it's so competitive to get into CRNA school. You can do a lot of really good things and still not get in. Uh, it's, wow. it's very like I think. They have like three to 400 people every year apply for most programs. 
and they take, uh, depending on the school, they average around like 20 to 25 people they take. Yeah, so like 10% take, less. Yeah. It's about a 10% acceptance rate to most programs. So it's, it's really hard to get in. Uh, I actually offer mock interviews and strategy sessions for people now as a CRNA. I, I try and help people out because God knows there wasn't any of that back then for me. And I was just making mistakes left and right, saying dumb stuff in the interview. I didn't realize was not good. Um, very common to do. You'll say something that's like offensive that you don't realize is offensive to a CRNA or something when you're really. I wasn't a smart person. And if someone wants to reach you, how would they do that? Is uh, it on the website? Yeah, it's on my Instagram. I have a link on my Instagram. Okay. Both CRNA is my Instagram yeah. link. I think this would be pretty cool for, you know, nurses that are either finishing up as a CRNA or looking to become CRNA so they can prepare themselves. That's a pretty cool thing you're doing for nurses. I try. So, I try to help out. Yeah. So, you know, you said that you were a traveler that actually plays into one of the questions that we got from one of our followers. And he said, would it be worth it quitting travel nursing or working in the ICU for about two years, then go to CRNA? You think it would be worth it for him to quit at this time because the rates are so high for travel nurses? And he's at this point looking to increase his income. That's it, what he's looking for. Right. So goal for income. I mean, it, that depends. Like if you want money right now, and you're getting paid very well being a PACU nurse and you don't mind what you're doing, then you know you can definitely to stay being a PACU nurse for a little while and, and focus on that. If you're looking to do ICU, you would need to, of course, especially if it's your first job in the ICU, you're gonna to need to take a staff position where you're gonna become, yeah. kind of, it's gonna be a whole new learning. You're gonna feel like a new grad. I'll, all over again, going to the unit and they're going to put you through an orientation process. Mm -hmm. They're going to be watching over you. It's going to, you're going to be precepted. It's going to be kind of annoying because you'll feel like I'm an experienced nurse. Why are you like holding my hand and watching yeah. me for six months to a year? But that's kind of the process when you're new to the ICU. So, and there's a lot of learning. You'll, you'll have to go home and read up on things when you move to the ICU on different drugs and different things. Uh, so if you're not ready for that step, then hold off, you know, stay and pack you and, and make that money. Uh, but ultimately, if your true lifelong goal, like the longevity of your life and career is high money income, then I would not spend more time working as an RN. I would go ahead and focus on becoming a CRNA as fast as possible because your earning potential will always be higher as a CRNA. Um, so apples to apples if you're trying to compare yeah. and your ultimate goal is to become a crna don't waste any more time doing other things unless you just have like an urgent need to pay something off right now or like your major debt or something you need to pay for immediately but most people will tell you that you'd be smart just go for the crna and long term you will have more money now i've been told by some of our followers that there's new requirements for crna starting in 2025 is that true are you to become a CRNA, to become yeah. a CRNA. The doctoral requirement, yeah. Um, so yeah, that is, uh, I actually have my doctorate. Uh, they started transitioning the programs in 2014 or 2013. They all started transitioning over. They gave them 10 years. Uh, the Council on Accreditation, who governs over all CRNA programs and their accreditation, said way back then, they're like, we're going to give you like a decade to transfer over from master's because they used to be master's degrees to doctoral degrees. And uh, in a lot of programs, when I was applying in 2015, 2016, probably half the programs had already transitioned to doctoral at that point because they knew they had to. The last couple little stragglers transitioned to doctoral like a year ago. So yeah, there are no master's degrees anymore for CRNAs. It's all doctoral. Okay. 
Um, and, and that is because of that requirement to sit for boards by 2025, which of course that's once you're graduating at that point, you means you started your program years prior. Um, you have to, to take boards when you graduate. It has to be a doctorate degree you graduated with. So yeah, that's why already the programs are all doctoral at this point. So when did you graduate as a nurse, as an RN? 2012, May 2012. Did you get your BSN at that point? I did because I was, you know, I was pre-med before that and that my focus when I was at a university. I did do some prereqs like my first year or so. I did at community college. For, it was like 90 credit hours uh, uh, for a lot of my like English 101 and history and speech class and things like that. Those basic classes talking about money and finances. I, I highly recommend don't don't run off first year uh, as an 18 year old to an expensive university and blow a bunch of money on classes that are pretty much the same English 101, the same history class you're going to take anywhere, and you're you're going to just spend a lot more money for those classes. You might as well take them somewhere where when you make mistakes and you goof up and you bomb a class, you make a you know do something wrong in a math class and you have to retake it. It's not a thousand dollar mistake it's like a two hundred dollar mistake yeah so that's what i did um and then i transferred to a university for my nursing program and how long did it take you from the moment you graduated as a bsn student to the moment you became a crna four years it's a four-year oh. process for me that's pretty quick yeah it's, it's pretty average a lot of people i mean some people do it faster i had one buddy in crna school who had just over he like a year and three months from the time he graduated and he went to the ICU right out of graduation, he had like a year and three months and he was in the program starting CRNA school. So it was very, that's very, very fast, very unusual. He was like a straight A 4.0 genius guy. The professors knew him. It was, at, he went to nursing school at the same program he went to CRNA school at. The professors already knew him from back when he was in nursing school. He had made those connections and networked and kind of you know, rubbed elbows with the right people and, and things all just, he was already primed and prepped even when he was in nursing school to be ready for CRNA school. So that's how it works so fast for him. It is possible so that it's something you could possibly do, but I'll say it's not normal. It's not the usual. So you became a CRNA in 2015? No, I started CRNA school in 2016 oh. and I graduated in um, 2019. Um, I was a CRA. Oh, okay. So you got your BSN in 2012. Yes. Started started CRNA school in 2016 and graduated in 2019. Yeah. All right. So it took about what seven years or so before you became a CRNA. Yeah, from the time I was a nurse. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, what would you say to nurses that are wondering if, or students currently that are wondering if they should become a CRNA or whether they should take the anesthesiologist route? Those are two valid options. And obviously I was, I said I was pre-med. So I, I was almost going that path myself. I would say if you want to, you need to figure out, do you want to be a physician first? Because before you go into anesthesia, you're going to need to be a physician first. If you're going the physician anesthesiologist path, which is just a very generalist, your med school program and your first intern year of residency is not really going to be anything at all about anesthesia. 
um, you know, your four years of med school and your intern year is going to be mostly focused on just general medicine and general just learning sciences and, you know, rotating kind of how like nursing school is just a generalist kind of thing. When you finish nursing school, you don't, you're not like a pediatric ICU nurse. And when you finish nursing school, you're, you're like from scratch, just a very general, you've learned a lot of topics about a lot of things. And that's what med school is like, but it's like four years of it. It's a lot of generalist information. And then, um, you have to do uh, their residency for anesthesia is four years. So their first year, their intern year is usually just general medicine, just learning like how to prescribe antibiotics, how to like interact with patients, like how to just be a doctor in general, like a very basic level. And then on their, their next year, which their next three years after that, is focused on anesthesia. That's when they actually go into the ORs. Typically, they start learning how to give anesthesia and, and you know manage airways, and they start focusing more on actual uh, anesthesia knowledge. So as a CRNA, we start our first year of CRNA school kind of focused in on anesthesia, and we spent all three years like just anesthesia because we already did nursing school prior and undergrad. We did all of our, like not four years, but two or so years of just generalist knowledge about different things, already decided we liked critical care and anesthesia, went into in, uh, critical care and learning about propofol and you know sick patients and how to manage people as ICU nurses. And we do our years of practice and learning then. And then when we go back to school for anesthesia, we're focusing directly in on anesthesia because we already know that this is what our interest is. We've already spent some background and information on this. So now we're just focusing on anesthesia. Um, Whereas the other pathway, like I mentioned, is, is more of like a longer path. It's a little bit more generalist for a while. And then at the tail end, the last three years, they zone in on anesthesia. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, you just have to decide. You have to remember the matching sy system for, for physicians is different. So you may not even match into anesthesia. You could do four years of med school. And this is one of the major reasons I didn't want to go that path is when, when you try and match in places, uh, you you don't have as much say so you have a pick of your top places you want to go and specialties that you're interested in that doesn't mean you actually will get to match into those things um, you not match into like your fourth or fifth pick and it may not be anesthesia it could be a different thing or it might be a program you don't really want to go to or a part of the country you have to go live in you don't really want to live in uh, but that's just where you match and that's where you got to go or you might be unlucky enough based off your scores and the grades you don't match anywhere and there are some people every year who don't match and you don't go, which means you don't get to go into training and become a real doctor. You're just kind of, you just have a degree, but you're not able to use it um, because you, you can't use it without your additional training. So there's just a lot of flaws and stuff in that system. But if you chose to go that route, um, you know, you just have to really analyze, is this, is this truly what I want? Now, how would you compare your role versus an anesthesiologist's role at the bedside or with the patient? Sure. So it's the same. Uh, we, we do the exact same job. We have the exact same scope of practice in the world of anesthesia. Uh, anything a physician anesthesiologist is going to do for a patient, a nurse anesthesiologist also is licensed and capable of doing, um, so yeah, I mean it's it the role is pretty much identical uh, when you're when you're crossing this over between uh, a patient. If you, if I needed to take over a case or do something like that, um, I can do that for you know a physician anesthesiologist. We're we're independent anesthesia providers as CRNAs, and uh, and so we practice independently of physician anesthesiologists. And I I personally practice independently. I uh, do anesthesia in outpatient surgery centers and 
uh, I've done anesthesia, you know, of course, in hospital settings and, and um, you know, we, we operate independently. Then my question is, why are hospitals and facilities hiring anesthesiologists when they can hire CRNAs? Oh, well, I mean, there's definitely, there's one, there's more than enough cases to go around for both of us. In fact, there's not, even if every single anesthesi physician anesthesiologist and nurse anesthesiologist in the country was in a room trying to give anesthesia, there probably still would be a little bit of a shortage. And that's just the current state of what we're in right now. So um, the market has been very short on providers for years and probably will be short for a number of years going forward. Uh, so for one, there's enough to go around for everyone, but um, there also is just a cultural thing, you know, so it's, it depends on the surgeon. So if a surgeon feels more comfortable with a physician anesthesiologist or feels that like, I, I've met multiple surgeons that don't, that are I'm working with and I'm doing a case for, and they didn't realize, they thought somebody somewhere was supervising me and they would ask me if I'm being supervised right now. And I would say, no, of course I'm not. And they would, they would be like, oh, you're not supervised. I'm like, no, I'm not. And they would be shocked to hear that I'm just operating independently all day and no one's supervising me. So <clears throat> there are surgeons in a, so if surgeons in a hospital setting, um, believe that you need physician anesthesiologists in the ORs or you need them like in the hospital somewhere around as backup in case you need supervision, they're going to ask for those people to be hired in at the hospital. And that that's just a general medical culture. It's been around for like 60, 70 years since physicians got into anesthesia, like in the 1930s when they got around into anesthesia. Um, CRNAs were actually the original anesthesia provider. We were the ones doing anesthesia first all the way back to the Civil War. And even some of our CRNAs or nurse anesthetists trained physicians, the first couple uh, who were interested in it, we were involved in some of their training. So we've worked together and, and had a really great collaboration for a long time. But when they got involved, they kind of, you know, just took over a little bit and, and just took on the more of a supervisor role and just said, we're here as backup and we're just going to like be around. Um, and of course, they've also done great research and they've, they've developed great things and offered, they've, they've brought a lot of great things to the field of anesthesia too. But when the politics get involved, it a little bit becomes about money and ego. And so that invades the whole hospital setting sometimes. And with the physician, um, anesthesiologists, sometimes they feel like the hospital system just feels like we want them around, even if it's not legally required. And even if they haven't had any you know, bad problems with any CRNAs or anything, they just want them around for a supervisor position because that's maybe the surgeons feel comfortable, more comfortable with that, or the hospital administrators feel like that's just what they need. And honestly, sometimes I, I've spoken to admin before and they don't even realize that we're legally not required to have, like somebody's told them that we were required to be supervised and they just believed it. And they just said, okay, well, we need, we need physicians hired in the, to supervise them. Um, so it's a lot of that kind of um, politics and just word of mouth and medical cultures. A lot of that reason why you see physicians supervising a lot of CRNAs. Yeah. And I, you know what? This is all news to me because I don't think it is common knowledge. People don't know that CRNAs can work independently. Right. There, there are some states, about half the states, for billing purposes, for Medicare and Medicaid to get reimbursed after you're done doing a case with, uh, with a patient who has Medicare and Medicaid. They do want a physician signature somewhere on the chart. About half the states do that, but it, it doesn't require it to be a physician anesthesiologist. It can be oh. the surgeon. It can be a dentist, a podiatrist. 
Uh, and all they have to do is just sign somewhere on in the medical record that they want anesthesia services provided by the CRNA team. And that's essentially it. It doesn't make them responsible for your actions. It doesn't make them liable for your, your practice or anything. Um, but there's just a lot of misinformation out there. But slowly, every year, more more people are talking very bluntly and candidly about the actual legality of everything and the actual rules and regulations. And and ultimately, it, it opens up more cost savings for our patients and our abilities for hospitals who potentially can't afford to pay a lot of really high salaries, especially for supervisory roles that are redundant and not really providing much for anyone uh, and that are like costing them money that's maybe putting them under. Uh, a lot more people are being candid and talking about those things. And so hospitals are switching and changing to all CRNA groups or even just like a loose collaborative group where there's a couple physician anesthesiologists around and, you know, as part of the team, but they're not like managing anyone and they're actually doing cases and, and providing anesthesia for their patients, which is what they should be doing. It's what they train to do. It's what they're licensed to do. They should be providing anesthesia for their patients and, and getting some surgeries done. So when you were in CRNA school, do you remember what your schedule looked like? How many hours a day or how many hours per week were you going to school? Um, yeah, so I usually tell people it, it varies from, from week to week or semester to semester. Your schedule slight, change slightly in different ways. But ultimately, I tell people a plan for about 70 hours a week for the three years. Um, plan for about a 70-hour-a-week commitment, depending on what you're doing, whether it be studying, you're in class listening to lecture, you're in the clinical rotation site, you're at home doing research. Um, I would expect every week at least 70 hours, sometimes more. Uh, that sounds like being a resident. It is. I mean, it's three years of a very intense schedule. And of course, I mean, when you get done, you're able to be a full practice anesthesia provider. So, I mean, it takes time. You can't, you can't lackadaisically go through a program and, and have a chill environment and Absolutely. not have a extreme pressure crucible, you know, requirements on your time uh, and then come out and be able to do all these things, put in epidurals and, and manage sick patients and things like that. It takes time. Those things take time, commitment, stress, work, and CRNA school will give that to you in spades. You will get all of that in three full years, nonstop, no breaks, no vacations. So how did you pay for school? Were you working at the time? Oh, no, no, no. So you can't really work in CRNA school. Um, you'll, you'll find like out of a thousand people, one person might have worked per diem once, yeah. once, like one shift a month or something. They might have, you know, done that. And that person is crazy to have done that. They're, <laughs> they're not the normal person. Most people who try and work at all like that are going to probably fail out of school. And it's just not worth jeopardizing. You, you spent all this time and energy and you struggled to get in and you, you, you know, competed amongst all these other applicants. You finally got in. You're almost to your dream career. Why would you jeopardize it by trying to work a couple extra shifts to make peanuts on the side and then bomb a test or something and be out of the program? Uh, so that's why almost no one works in the program because the programs, either they prohibit you from working and tell you you cannot work, or they tell you we just highly discourage it and they're, they're not prohibiting it. But they, if you start struggling, they're not going to help you because they're going to say, we don't, we told you not to work and you did. And now you're going to fail and this is your own fault. So, uh, so you pay for it through loans or by saving up money. And while you were traveling as an ICU nurse, did you manage to save any money to help you pay for CRNA school? 
I did. You know, I did two years of traveling and I, I had fun. I bought a Mercedes. I went to trips to Hawaii. Like I did the, I did the bougie nurse travel nurse thing back in the day. I know what that's like. Back when it wasn't as crazy lucrative as it is now, or at least it was during COVID. I, I think the rates have changed now, but um, back then they were still much better than typical nurse salary. And I even doing all of that, living my life, having fun, I still saved up like 65,000 before I started wow. the program. Yeah. But the program will cost you around 200,000 altogether. Okay. So it, most people are uh, like all in cost is close to 200 K for a doctoral CRNA program, especially talking about cost of living for three years, if you're trying to live on money. So the 65,000 went very fast and then a lot more still continue to, you know, accrue from, of student loan debt, which I've currently, I've paid, I paid off within 24 months of graduation. Are you serious? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, with it and pay it off and be debt free as soon as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. So when would you consider it a financially bad decision going to CRNA school? Like how much would it have to cost for you to say, this is too much? I don't think I'm going to do this. I guess it depends. I mean, one, I want to tell people don't do CRNA just for the money. Like if you're just looking at like, I want to make more money. So I'm going to do this career. Terrible yeah. reason to go into this yeah. and you'll be miserable. It's a very high stress career. There's lots of sacrifice, lots of work. And every day when you go in, you're kind of giving away a part of yourself to someone else. Similarly in the way you do as a bedside nurse, um, but just in a higher stress level where like you're actually legally responsible for their life for the next couple hours. And, and that kind of stress is not fun if it's not a passion or a calling for you uh, and you're just looking at the paycheck you're getting for it. But um, but as far as finances go, if, if you were looking at um, when is this a bad equation, I would say if you're so close to retirement, like if you're within 10 years of retirement, I probably wouldn't do it. I would say you're you're better off financially just staying, getting a good paying job as an RN and finding somewhere that's not a high you know stress level on your back or something, do case management or whatever. Don't don't blow your back out or something. But um, but I would just stick with the position where you're um, you're going to be paid pretty well and not have to work too too hard and just keep at it for the next 10 years, go on vacations and do other things that are your personal interests and passions. And, you know, don't, don't focus so much on just being in, in anesthesia because it's, it is a long road. It's very hard. And if you're, uh, as you're getting older, it, it just isn't as benefit. It doesn't benefit you by the time you get up paying off the student loans and then start trying to accrue. And then you, you have to realize there's three years of time you're not earning income. So that's, that's lost income for three years. So that's another portion of, of how the equation works for you. So if you're, then you're going to retire and within 10 years of getting done, it just doesn't make sense. So were there any cases that made you feel nervous? Do you currently have liability insurance that helps you in the case that something goes wrong in the operating room? Yeah. So, so all CRNAs have a malpractice plan. It's either provided um, some people who work W-2 for like a big group. They have a malpractice yeah. plan that's included in with their benefits package that's paid for them. Um, I am a 1099. I have an S corporation and I'm my own boss. Um, so I pay my own benefits and I pay for my own malpractice plan every year. And it's about $4,000 a year. Um, but it, that's actually pretty good. It's not bad. It's not bad actually. And, and it, the reason it's not terrible is because CRNAs have a long time history of very safe and 
and very high quality, you know, good outcomes with their patients. So the actuaries who come up with the rates for the insurances and stuff, they see that that in general CRNAs are very safe and have not not really any um, not a lot of bad outcomes. So they don't have to pay a lot of lawsuits out. So they don't mind, you know, you don't have to pay quite as much for your liability, which is it's a good indicator. It's a it's a safe career. Now, how did you find out about getting your S Corp? How'd you go about doing that? Did somebody recommend you do it or did you just like do all this research and find out on your own? So in CRNA school, part of a doctoral education is a lot of professional aspects courses, a lot of leadership, um, lots of legislative information. It's just more of a whole encompassing uh, field where you're learning more than just how to directly give anesthesia, but you're learning a lot of things. And one of those things they taught us was some business courses, some business acumen. And it's also taught in a lot of the conferences, the anesthesia conferences will always have some kind of lecture about independent practice and having your own S-Corp and 1099 contracts and things like that. So as a student, I learned a lot of these top topics. And then when I got out into the CRNA world, I, of course, I worked as a W-2, like in a group, in a bigger group and got my feet wet and kind of got a solid foundation underneath of me for about two years before I decided to go ahead and transition on into owning my own um, company. And, uh, and I did have a couple mentors of mine that I had met along the way who also owned their own companies and actually employed other CRNAs and kind of managed their own bigger concept groups. I don't want that really not right now. I just want to manage myself. I want to employ myself. And, uh, and so they kind of helped guide me along and signed me up with, uh, their CPA who knows how to do taxes and manage people who are CRNAs and they understand the ins and outs of all that. I have, you know, a lawyer on retainer that I need, if I ever need one, I have one who's familiar with CRNAs in the state of California and laws like that. I have a financial advisor who's familiar with CRNAs and how to set up solo 401ks because as a, your own employer, you don't have a 401k through your company anymore. You have to have one solo that you actually pay money for. I have to pay someone to let me put money into a 401k, but I do that. Yeah. So your insurance plans and things like that, everything has to be set up through you. And, uh, and so I had some mentors help me along the way to do that. Uh, you know, finding mentors was probably one of the best things that could have happened to you because me currently, I still do my own taxes. I've tried finding an accountant to do my taxes for me and they screwed up big time previously. So I, I'm still, I've been trying to find an accountant for the longest time. And yeah. especially now with this YouTube channel, I have a website, I have so many other things going on. I need to find somebody to do these things for me and yeah. it's just finding the right person to do it for you it's it's just uh you know it seems like an insurmountable task because i can't find anybody yet it is it's hard i usually i recommend finding someone else who does something similar to you and who do they use. And, True. and they they usually are a good recommendation like okay they know True. what to do then so how long did it take you to find work after you got licensed as a crna oh gosh i had signed a contract four months before graduation <laughs> what? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like I mentioned, the um, the field is very short in providers and has been for many years. Even when I was applying to CRNA school in 2015, it was very short back then, and it will be very short for some years to come. So uh, actually, our third year in the program, every Friday, it was like a ritual for six months, I think. Every Friday, we had a different anesthesia group that would come and buy us lunch. They would show up, and we would have a break from lecture, and it was like an hour-long break. It was a different group every week. 
week and they would bring us Panera bread or, you know, <laughs> Jason's daily or whatever. It was always some catered thing they'd bring. And then they would have a presentation about their benefits package and why you want to pick their program and why you want to work here. They'd bring gifts and prizes. And some of the programs, uh, we had a place from Manhattan come down to Memphis, yeah. Tennessee. They flew down their representatives to try and recruit. And two of my classmates took a job up there in Manhattan, uh, live in the Upper East Side now and, and like it up there. Uh, but they brought like tote bags and stuff. Like people are going to woo you in CRNA school. You're going to have people buying these steak dinners. People are going to be trying to convince you to come work in their group. They're going to be like, here's a sign-on bonus. We'll give you 40000 if you sign on with us for two years. Like, you know, please come here. And uh, yeah, so there's no problem getting a job. You could pretty much drop a pin on the map anywhere in the U.S. and five groups will want you right away. So... <laughs> Um, that's amazing dude like i don't know any other profession where they do that to the students i i don't think i've heard of any others i mean maybe the tech world i've seen something like that happen but it's very rare you know so i i mean for you as a student that must have felt great you must have been like that's it i know i'm gonna have a job when i graduate you're so exhausted by that point and you're so poor <laughs> you're so broke and you're so tired of eating ramen noodles you're like panera bread thank god someone brought me panera bread like i can afford panera bread i don't have to pay and so yeah you're you're very much you're finally like oh thank god there's like a light at the end of the tunnel some of this terrible work we've been doing for years is starting we're seeing a glimmer of it to pay off one day and it energizes you and you're like oh people actually like me like people aren't treating me like garbage because in the ors for the, like the whole three years you're treated like gum on the bottom of someone's shoe for three years you're like talk to like trash everyone treats you like you're a total idiot it's a, it's a huge shift in mentality and the way that you're treated from being an ICU nurse where you're like considered an intelligent, vital member of the team. And then suddenly all those people who talk to you like you were important then suddenly talk to you like you're garbage and an idiot and they like pimp you out and just, you know, grill you all the time in the ORs. How did this happen? How did I go yeah. from being on court to being so dumb that even the circulating nurse in the room is like, hates my guts? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, it's a very strange switch. So when someone starts buying you things in third year, you're like, oh, someone doesn't hate me. I love this. <laughs> So how many hours a week are you currently working or how many hours per shift? I work, uh, I try and work three eights a week. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, you know, for my first couple of years, it's a W2. You're going to work a decent chunk. Honestly, that's part of there being a shortage right now. Even if you only want to work 40 hours a week, you're probably going to work over that. Your group will probably schedule you over that. Most groups will. Um, so I probably averaged anywhere between 48 to 55 hours a week the first two years in practice. If you include my call requirements, uh, most groups are going to require call from you. Uh, so you either have to stay overnight in the hospital and respond to like emergency surgeries or labor epidurals have to be placed at two in the morning with screening moms and things like that. Uh, it's it's pretty rough. Uh, one of my groups, uh, I had to work 16 or 24 hour call pretty much every week. Uh, that I worked for. So that was a really tough one uh, to be up really late, really long. And, um, and the other thing about being a CRNA is uh, unless your group is just really generous and wanting to be nice to you, they don't have to offer you time and a half or any kind of double pay or anything like that. That is not a thing really as a CRNA, unless your group is just adds it in as a perk to be nice. You're pretty much opted out of any labor laws as a CRNA. There, There is no such thing as that. So um, so some groups are just straight up salaried 100%. So whatever your salary is, that's just what you're getting. And it doesn't matter if you work 60 hours that week or 30 hours that week, you're getting paid the same. And, and some groups will say, um, you know, well, you only work 30 hours this last week. So this week, you know, 
don't complain that we're going to be here 60 hours. So it's, it's supposed to average out, but I will tell you, I worked for one group that worked kind of like that. And it always seems to average out in their favor at the end of the year when you're calculating up, you're like, I, I still probably average 44 hours a week, uh, even on the short weeks when you average in the long weeks. And it was so brutal to me. It really wasn't worth it. Uh, and you're not getting compensated really for that. So I now, now that I'm like a haggard old man who's put in my time, <laughs> Uh, I, and I own my own company. Uh, I choose to contract with different hospitals or different either. I do some per diem work at some hospitals, some bigger hospitals, just to keep my feet wet in the OB world and with some bigger cases. Uh, but I work mostly with outpatient surgery centers and, uh, and I try and do three days a week and they're usually eight hour days. Sometimes, like I said, it's, it's, you don't really have shifts as a CRNA as much. Some, some major bigger hospitals might have so many providers, they do have true shifts, but most places don't. You pretty much go in, you're going to do cases until that room that you're covering is done for the day. So if they're done at 2.15, uh, two you leave at 2.15. You're done at 4.10, you leave at 4.10. Like That's just kind of how it flows. You can't just abandon your patient. Um, so you have to stay there until the, the cases are done. And it's hard to predict when surgeries will be done because it depends on the surgeon and everything else. And and I have a flat rate that I charge for, for surgery centers. And uh, we just negotiate a flat rate depending on the surgery center and, you know, how how hard the day is for me. And if I, you know, enjoy working with that group, then I'll, you know, I can negotiate a smaller rate or whatever, depending on how hard the work is. And uh, so, yeah, if I leave at 12 o'clock, I'm getting paid the same if I leave at 12 or one or two or three or whatever. Do you remember how much you were earning per hour when you worked as a W-2 employee? I think it was like 140 as a wow. W-2. Yeah. But uh, the last time I calculated, but I mean, you're calculating in a lot of benefits. Like the thing about being a CRNA, it's not really about your hourly rate so much. A good chunk of your pay is built into a compensation package. So, um, so like that group that I was working 140 uh, per hour at, that's not including the fact that they give you $3,000 a year in CME. So that's money that I can spend. Uh, and what a lot of people do for those types of things is they go on vacation. They go to Hawaii, $3,000 at a five-star resort or something. Yeah. And they take a couple online CME classes while they're there in the afternoon. And that's their CME. Like that's what a lot of people do. So you have that. You have, we have free health insurance. We have free dental insurance. We have free long-term disability insurance. Uh, that was like premium, high quality. So you stuff. didn't have to pay. There were no premiums whatsoever that you had to pay into that. No deductibles, nothing like that. No, not wow. for me. Yeah, maybe. I but think you have, if a, you have a family plan or something. You had to pay like ten dollars or something like that. But it was just <laughs> single, so mine was free. Um, what about they, retirement plans? They had four hundred one k retirement. They had a seven, seven or nine percent. Not matching, but they just put seven to nine percent, depending on how many years you've been there, yeah. into a 401k of your total income oh, for the year, wow. into a 401k for you. Which, when you're talking about the kind of salaries of a CRNA, you're looking at like that's pretty much maxing out your 401k yes. for you. Um, <laughs> and then, oh, when they had a pension plan after five years, where you would have like a pension if you had been invested after five years being there so that pretty much when you retired, you get like a paycheck of like a third of your total highest year salary. They just write you a check the rest of your life after you retire. Um, like there's lots of things like that. Why did you leave? No, I'm just playing. Actually, I totally understand why you would leave because I'd rather be my own boss than be somebody else's employee. Exactly. I prefer 
to be my own boss and manage my own stuff, my own 401k in, manage my own schedule, decide in two weeks I'm going to go to Cabo, which I did. A friend of mine's like, want to go to Cabo in a couple weeks? I'm like, yeah, let's go. Uh, when we work for a big group, you don't go to Cabo in two weeks. You you <laughs> tell them six months in advance, can I go to Cabo? And then they tell you if you can or cannot go. And, uh, and then they make it good. Oh, and you also get like six weeks of PTO in that group, like pay time off, which is pretty common. The first year? Yeah. Uh, well, I That's think five weeks. I think it might have been Either five way. weeks year, and then six weeks after. But a lot of groups, it's uh, it's a high level of PTO for most of your hospital groups you're going to work in, CRNA. So uh, now, granted, they may tell you we're too short staff for you to take that vacation. So you have to rack, you have to like stack that PTO up. You can't actually get to use it, but you have it there technically. So yeah. how long did you work there before you decided to just open up your own business? I worked at that particular group I'm referencing a year. I worked at a different group the year before that. So I've kind of put my foot into a couple of different groups to feel out what I really wanted or what I, what was truly most important to me. I even did about four months per diem at a, like a really big name academic center uh, in the Bay Area. A lot of people know uh, just to see what is it like to work here? Do I like this environment? What's the pros and cons? And ultimately by doing all of these things, I just realized I truly am the type of person that prefers just to own my own company, manage my own contracts, work when I'm available and when I want to, and, you know, manage things myself, be my own boss. I love it. That's, I'm the same way. I, you know, right now I only work 20 hours a week. I work in an ER for Kaiser Permanente in Sacramento, California, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be working five days in a row. I work eight hour shifts. So I have nine days off every other week and I'm slowly like trying to reduce my schedule as much as possible while still being able to get my benefits because my wife is per diem. So she gets her benefits through me and so do my kids. So, you know, I'm doing the least amount of hours I can while still being able to get the benefits, but also contribute more of my time towards this business that I'm trying to grow because like I have this website, but I have a bigger vision than just that. Um, I'm, you know, I'm looking to create an app for nurses. I'm looking to create an, a website specifically for nurses. So it's going to be, it's going to take years for me to get to that point because just creating a website can cost at least 50 to $60,000 and upwards of like a hundred, $200,000. So, you know, I'm investing most of my time and money into that right now. It's a big one, but it's nice to be able to work on your own project, your own passions. Oh uh, yeah. I'm sure you've realized over time that these bigger hospitals and these big groups, it's its a business ultimately, or at least a yeah. big portion of it is business. And you are just one cog in their machine and they will dump you and replace you the minute they need to. So it's its just heartbreaking to see people, especially older generations, like 50 plus uh, baby boomers who like invested their whole lives and careers and energies and sacrifices into these big corporate machines only to realize in their older age, like they don't really care about them. They don't really you know, they'll dump them or retire them and move on as soon as they can. And I think the pandemic showed a lot of RNs and, and LBNs, nurses in general, that, uh, that, that, you know, in 2020, you realize you are not anything of significance to these facilities. They will use you, abuse you, burn you out and throw you out. And so if you don't have something on the side that you're doing, something that's your own business, your own passion, your own backup plan, um, 
you know, this career as an as a nurse or a doctor, anybody really, I mean, no one's exempt in healthcare from being a cog in the machine and being used and abused. So I highly recommend people have something they're passionate about, something that they control, it's a business of some sort or some way to make money or get by that's not just their career uh, in case they ever need a backup. I agree 100%. So do you remember, because you said that you paid off your loans in two years. Mm -hmm. Do you remember how much you earned in those first two years as a CRNA? Yeah, sure. Um, I think 220 my first year, 250 wow. my second year. Jeez. And are you earning more now as an independent contractor? Yeah, yeah. Because, wow. I mean, you have to pay taxes. So as a W-2, your employer pays half of your uh, federal uh, taxes. So yeah. as, a, as an independent contractor, you're, you're paying the other half that they're paying because you're the employer now too. So, uh, so you have to, you have to demand more higher income, uh, in order to pay taxes in the year and not come out in the negative. So, um, so yeah, I do that, but then also you have a lot of tax write-offs and lots of things that can be tax advantageous to you as an, as a, your own employer. So there's lots of ways you can uh, have your accountant, you know, show you that you're losing money in certain areas or that the cost of the business and things like that, which like my malpractice insurance and all those things cost. And so in those ways, you end up saving money through the year on your taxes. And, uh, and so for me, it, it comes out that I net positive more than I ever did as a W2 working mm -hmm. less hours. Yeah. See, that's the beauty of being a business owner because you can write off all these things that you use for your business. Like my wife and I, we went to a, well, he's a friend of ours now, but he's been a follower of ours for like the last year and a half or so. Since we started this YouTube channel, he has his own YouTube channel. And yeah. he owned, this is a nurse who works like an ungodly amount of hours. He works like 86 hours a week. He works too much, too mm -hmm. much, right? He doesn't think he works too much. He loves working. He's obsessed with working. He loves it so much that he just wants to be at work all the time. Mm. And he made 600,000. Well, he's on track to making $600,000 this year. He owns a Lamborghini, which is the reason why we flew out to San Diego. So we can record ourselves riding in his Lamborghini. That's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there are people on one end of the spectrum that just want to be completely debt free. But then there are people on the opposite end of the spectrum that just want to live their life and enjoy the money that they earn by yeah. spending it. Right. And I'm on the other end of the spectrum where I just want to be debt free. Yeah. And I don't want to have any debt. <laughs> yeah, I was I, I worked 40 hours a week or more until I paid off all debt and was debt free. And yeah. that's when I transitioned to my own company. And now I work less hours and I have a little bit more, you know, I have time to help people. Like on, I have two days a week where I just do like strategy sessions and mock interview sessions with people online to help them get into CRNA school. So it's more of a passion project of mine where I get to help people and I'm kind of like working from home. So, uh, so I, I like can have a golf lesson in the afternoon, like on a Friday <laughs> afternoon, I go out to have golf lessons and yeah. uh, I have weekends free and holidays free and I go on vacations and I, you know, go out on dates and I have energy and time to like, just live my life finally. And at 35, I, I'm just, I'm at that point in my life where I'm like, I want to live my life. I want to enjoy what I've earned and what I'm doing it. And I have the luxury of doing that. So I certainly don't want to work 80 hours a week. Um, and, and I don't want to even work, really want to work 40 hours a week. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> That's the reason why I'm only working 20. And I, I feel like even 20 hours a week is too many, but you yeah. know what? I, when you focus and only work on like your business, I'm sure it's much more fun for you than 
doing something that someone is requiring you to do, right? Like for me, when I, I'm editing stuff on our website or where, when I'm creating a YouTube video, I find personally, I find that fun. So it doesn't feel like work for me. I can do that all day. You know, if I'm traveling to somebody's house so I can record a video, that's cool to me. That's entertaining. I love doing that. Right. So, but when I know that I have to wake up at a certain time to show up at work and if I don't show up, they can write me up or they can fire me. That is not fun for me. No, that's stressful. Someone that, you know, some ER physician yells at you for doing something that they don't like, or that you're dealing with an attitude from a charge nurse or something, and you're you're just told to suck it up and whatever. That's not fun for me. Like I certainly would not want to do that 80 hours a week. That would burn me out so bad. Um, I I like I like to be able to kind of just own my own time, my own schedule, um, and that's one benefit of being a CRNA. If, if this like this guy who likes working 80 hours a week. Um, there are some CRNAs. I don't know if they work 80 hours a week, but there's there's quite a few CRNAs who are like that guy who who want to work 60, especially the first like five or 10 years of their practice. They will work a lot of hours a week. They'll work, you know, they, they maybe they've got two kids at home and a spouse or something. And they, you know, they get in this kind of rat race idea that they need like a vacation home and, you know, on, on the beach and they need a yacht and they need this and they need a McMansion and they need all these things and they need two luxury vehicles and and they do that they live that lifestyle they go on these lavish vacations all the time and super luxury stuff and they work 60 hours a week and they're just grinding away and as a crna you can do that and you can make a lot of money um a stupid amount of money if you want uh working a lot like that but for me never interests me you know i wanted to get debt free and then stop how much is the most amount of money you've seen a CRNA make in one year? CRNAs are like weird about money. They don't really, they're not, you know, what's funny with nurses, they'll very blatantly, especially like a yeah. Kaiser stuff, they'll, very, they'll just tell you straight up. In fact, I think they even post the nurses' salaries on yeah. Kaiser's website or something like that. There's just yeah. a lot of talk and transparency on the money there. But CRNAs don't really do that. Like uh, I've noticed that. Yeah, yeah because... I don't know if you've noticed, if you go on YouTube and you type in registered nurse salary, you'll see thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of videos where nurses show their pay stubs. But if you type in CRNA salary, nobody talks about their personal salary. They talk about the statistics, but yeah. not their personal salaries. Yeah, it's kind of taught to you. It's a cultural thing. Um, yeah. In school, you're kind of taught that it's like faux pas. It's kind of like... Uh, not very classy, like you shouldn't talk about your money. What you're also taught like to not discuss anything in the ORs about your lifestyle or your money because other people in the ORs may not have those things and may find you bragging or disrespectful or something. So it, you're, you're just kind of taught, like even the surgeons and a lot of other people around there, like they don't really tell people directly. I've had some tell me a little bit more directly like what they're earning, but usually more private. And people are, they're just a little more careful in the provider realm of like exactly how much they're making. And, and I don't know, it's probably multi-layered. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, if I had to guess 500,000, yeah, probably, probably somewhere around what's, what some of the higher end CRNAs are making who are working, you know, like 55 hours a week and, yeah. you know, really just putting in the grind all the time, 50, 60 hours a week, they're probably making a lot more like that. Cause honestly, if you just do the math, there are tons of positions out there that are just 40 hours a week around 300,000. So wow. if you wanted to, if you wanted to extrapolate from there, if they're working yeah. 
20 more hours a week over that or something, then they're probably, they're probably earning a chunk more than that. Absolutely. So why did you decide to practice in California instead of, you said you went to, you were in Tennessee? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I liked the, you know, I was a travel nurse out here first back before grad school. So I wanted to come back and I wanted to, um, you know, be in the sunshine. I like having the mountains and the ocean and the culture and the diversity, the different types of food. Uh, I find the people much more interesting and progressive. I grew up like in a really conservative Christian, um, yeah. you know, household in the Bible Belt, where you know, everybody looks just like me. Everybody talks just like me. Everybody has the same background as me, and all goes to church on Sunday at the same place, and it's just very boring. And uh, and so when I came travel nursing, it was the first time that I met people who were like uh, Hindu or something, and they yeah. and, wow friends with people who are just totally like they eat with their fingers like they eat <laughs> their food like with their fingers and not forks and knives and stuff and just i experienced life and culture and diversity and uh different perspectives on the world and I, I found people who didn't believe in jesus christ as their lord and savior and things like that which growing up in the south that's like a given every single person <laughs> believes you must or you're, you're gonna hide the fact you don't believe it and uh you know <laughs> Here, people don't just say like you have a blessed day at the when you when you're at the cash register or something like yeah. they don't do that here. I just find it fascinating. Just, I realized there's a whole world of people, and and it's it's not just in California. There's other places too, but California is a really good picture of of millions of people. I think there's 39 million people in the state, yeah. much more than any other state, and they are from all over the world. There are people who are straight from Hong Kong over here, like yeah. they here three weeks ago and like you you just see uh people from all over the world different cultures and different um different types of you know diversity that i liked here and, and different ways of thinking and I, I just found it invigorating and refreshing and the weather is amazing i hate the winter i hate <laughs> snow i hate any temperature under 50 degrees if it goes to <laughs> 50 i'm not in a good mood anymore like we gotta get above 50 and we gotta stay outdoors year round here and uh, i like that but see, the beauty of being a CRNA is that you have the option to, like I said, live in any state and not have to worry about your living expenses because you're making such a decent salary that that's like the least of your worries. Yeah, you're, you're not going to move anywhere where you're going to be. In fact, I actually, what I make here, I could make living in Tennessee. That's the other thing about being an RN that's different from being a CRNA is our salary is pretty much very high anywhere yeah. you're going to go in the country. You can go live in a Waco, Texas, uh, yeah. where you buy a very nice house for 300000 and make $240,000 a year as a CRNA. Yeah. So um, that is different. You go there as an RN and you're suddenly going to make $70,000 a year as, as, a, as an RN. <laughs> So yep. your salary drops dramatically when you move out of the state of California, but as a CRNA, it doesn't. And in fact, some places, the more rural you go and the cheaper it is to live, the higher your salary goes as yeah. a CRNA because they're trying to recruit you out there even yeah. more. They have to spend more money to get you to live there. Um, yeah. You know, I made a video about the highest paying states for CRNAs, and that is what I noticed in my research. Places like West Virginia and Wyoming are like some of the highest paying states in the entire country for CRNAs, where the cost of living is like so small that you don't, I mean, you could buy a house for like $150,000, $120,000. <laughs> yeah, you definitely can. It's funny, I tell people, I, now I live out, you know, here in San Jose where the houses are like $1 million for a one bed. Yeah. So, um, so it's funny. I tell people out here that I, I have already, I bought a home when I was 25 as a new grad nurse. 
and it was a three bedroom, two bath on a, in a nice little neighborhood near the Starbucks and the Target and all that kind of stuff in a little mm-hmm. suburban neighborhood in Alabama. And, uh, and people are disturbed by hearing that I paid $74,000 for that house. <laughs> I cannot believe it no. <laughs> for that house. And I used it as a rental property for years. I, I lived in it for a few years and I rent, used it as a rental property, made money on it. And then I sold it for a, a significant profit during that boom in the housing market about a year or so back. Oh, um, that's the perfect time. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was time to finally get rid of it and, and yeah. make a good profit on it. Yeah. And, uh, but over here, I mean, that house, if I had transplanted that house and just dropped it anywhere within 20 miles of where I live now, the house would be $1.5 million. Wow. So that's impossible. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Actually, you're absolutely right. Especially in San Jose. <laughs> yes. It's so expensive. It's outrageous. But I mean, as a CRNA, I can still afford to live here comfortably. Uh, I just irritated by it, but I can. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Well, you know what, Jason, that's the last of our questions. And I am so glad you managed to get on this call with me because I'm sure everybody who watches my videos is going to love this video and they're going to follow you after watching this video. So I want you to give them your handle on Instagram and your YouTube channel so they can find you after the video. Of course, yeah. So I'm Bolt CRNA on uh, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. And I also have a Facebook page too. All right, guys, that's it for this video. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure you hit the like button, subscribe to this channel. And if you want to be a guest in one of our next episodes, then make sure you click on the link in the description below. Also, if you want to see our previous videos, then make sure you click on this video here.